Welcome to the AACPP podcast, the podcast brought to you by the Association of Child Protection Professionals, where we, alongside expert guests, discuss important issues within child protection and safeguarding. There has never been a more important time to keep up with child protection and safeguarding, but with regulation frequently changing, we realise not all professionals have the time to do so. That's why we've created this podcast, to give you what you need to stay informed. Every week we'll be inviting child protection professionals with expertise in either research or practice to share their learnings. In each episode, we'll be taking a focused look at a singular issue that you need to know about. These are often specific and urgent, so we'll be talking with the professional at the forefront of the issue. Hello, I'm Mark Pearson, a trustee of the Association of Child Protection Professionals and your host for today. In today's episode, I'll be talking with Kalechi Akandu about the UK's response to child exploitation and what child protection professionals can do to better protect children from it. Kalechi Akandu currently works as a children's safeguarding advisor in London, and she has worked for many years in the NHS, both within the acute and community settings. She has had many years of experience as a specialist, community public health nurse supporting families with complex safeguarding issues and adverse childhood experiences. Kalechi is a passionate leader who is currently on the highly acclaimed Florence Nightingale Leadership Programme. She is an innovator who has led on different projects for NHS England and Health Education England and a passionate trainer and speaker who has delivered training to hundreds of professionals facilitated parenting programs, supervised clinicians in practice. She is a nurse mentor, specialist practice teacher and nurse prescriber. She has local authority partnership awards and continues to be recognised for her impactful change in her organisation in relation to safeguarding children. Most recently, she is completing work in partnership with the local authority on the child exploitation and serious youth violence strategy with expertise in the topic of intrafamiliar abuse, adultification, cultural competency, contextual safeguarding, intersectionality and the identification of neglect and trauma-informed approach and think family approach. Thank you for speaking to us today, Kalechi. Really, what I want to start with is every day on the news, another child dies as a result of serious youth violence. This is a, a national issue and a big priority for the government and Mayor's Office for Policing and Crime. As safeguarding practitioners, what can we do to help? And secondly, are we aware of ACEs and responding using a more trauma-informed approach? Absolutely. Great question, Mark. So basically, ACEs trauma-informed approach it's for professionals to be aware if they're not aware so there's a recognition that a lot of these children that have been involved in serious food violence or have been impacted by vulnerabilities such as have experience of ACEs which is adverse childhood experiences and that could include domestic violence one or partners or parents being in prison mental health drugs etc so one one of my main focuses is to make practitioners that work with children aware around these things. And actually, if you don't know, it's really your responsibility to get to know. Right. And why are you so passionate about the subject? So I usually let people know that not only do I work in safeguarding, but I was also a child that was brought up in, in London Borough, Hackney to be precise, which is one of top five or top 10 at the moment, serious violence boroughs. So 
I have had first-hand experience of family members myself in relation to criminal and sexual exploitation. So I recognize actually growing up what I may have needed to support me as a young girl, a teenage girl, and also some of my family members who are also female or male who have been caught up in, in, in such a lifestyle. And I recognize actually being a first-hand, having that experience, sometimes I see the lack and sometimes I see children that are experiencing some of these things and I have an identification of actually what can support them and help them. So it's a passion because I am someone that have experienced some of the, the vulnerabilities. Right. So you're currently working in London and across three London boroughs at the moment. There's a multi-agency response to child exploitation. I think examples that you've given previously are Grasp in Woolwich and the Concern Hub in Lewisham. And I think there's a connection with the police now with what I understand is called Op Trilogy. So it would be great to understand what current services are available in the context of that multi-agency working. Yeah, a great, great question. So currently, as you've mentioned, the MOPAC uh, response is to identify homicide is the one of the biggest priorities. But what has been excellent is that there's been identification that part of the way to solve this is multi-agency work. So what's come out of there is a project and some projects such as the ones that you've mentioned, which are basically different professionals in one room discussing vulnerable children. So you have Trilogy, Police, which you mentioned, which are specific MET responses to drug gun and gang affiliated children and then you have probation involved and then you have advisors like myself or you have youth offending service involved violence reduction team so this has been a successful multi-agency response because what you recognize if you have these informations in-house you're better able to identify children at an early onset and almost try and think about areas where you can intervene provide intervention de-escalate a situation and also support this young child also, many of you guys might have heard of Red Thread, which is something that has been initially initiated in King's College Hospital. It's been a successful youth offending intervention for young people. And what that looks like is that actually there is an in-house, which is in the emergency department, support worker who would intervene early with a child who's come in with an injury, criminal exploitation, sexual exploitation, has made a disclosure of being involved in serious violence who has gang affiliation or recorded gang affiliation. And this is a point where there is a support worker to come in and try and engage this young person, see where they can identify support for them and see what agencies that they can link them in with. Yeah. So you've got all this great multi-agency working going on in, in London. What are some of the complicating factors of working jointly that you face day to day? So the main one is sharing of information between systems. So every area has their own lovely system and sometimes a practitioner in a particular area might not know the risks that there is for a child in another area so if a child uh, let's say a county lines has gone to another area there might not be a strong surveillance system where you a practitioner in another area can identify the vulnerabilities for this child so I see that definitely in this area where there is difficulties in that sharing of information and how that impacts on the quality of care that you might be able to give to that person where it be an appropriate referral or where it be knowing the vulnerability so if they're on a child protection plan a child in need plan are at risk or have been involved in things that they need support with so that's one of the main ones I look at a lot of uh, learning reviews and also homicide reviews so in some of these there are things such as sharing of information is not always that strong and actually that might be impacted by system issues but there's also identification where practitioners don't know when to escalate a situation or where to share an information when there hasn't been an actual disclosure by a young person 
So in this, in the cool part of London, and actually with young people, to share information with professionals is not seen as cool. So you might not have a child that would actually intrinsically say to you that I am involved in any of these things. They might have risk factors that shows that and is quite obvious, but they will never share that. So sometimes it's actually practitioners having confidence to identify these children quite early on and actually share that information with the appropriate service has been seen and identified in these reviews as not a strong point or an area of concern. Yeah. Now, so you've got these complicating factors sometimes with information sharing. There's a lot of investment in London in multi-agency working, dealing with criminal exploitation and serious youth violence in particular. But there's always two ends to a a county line. So the example I would give you is uh, gangs exploiting young people in, in seaside towns. Can you give me a flavour of how good that relationship is in terms of information sharing or consistency in approach between London boroughs and the other end of the county line, many of the cases being in seaside towns in most deprived areas? Yes, that's a great question, Mark. Thank you. So a lot of this information is held within the police So within London, that is known as the Metropolitan Police. As I've mentioned before, within a certain area that that looks like Trilogy and there's different names for it. So what I do know out of doing a bit of research is that there are different different hubs that work together in different areas, different counties that are specific to serious youth violence and county lines. There is not a strong surveillance system. However, there's different areas that have developed quite a good document, which they have the risk of children that are vulnerable, names, lists, PCN numbers. They also have high profile offenders or people that are recruiting young people. They have documentation that that's listed on. And where each brother, what is identified is that might differ in the amount of information held. But there is panels, there are hubs within the Metropolitan Police, but then there's also in the surrounding counties hubs as well that are police that specifically focus on this area. So they would then share information if a child has been stopped and searched or picked up in a particular area, let's say where you might be or another area in the north or east wherever of England. So that then is that sharing of information in-house within the police. Then whoever is the lead on that within the police will share that with the multi-agency as possibly that might look like in London with Concern Hub or with the Serious Youth Violence Panel so that there is a strong identification. So from my experience, that's been quite the case. A lot of the times we see children that have been attended or stopped in a particular area I'm aware of, or it's been shared within the hub or it's been shared within referral to social services. So that's the real answer, really. It's really within the police and sharing of information with other agencies. Yeah. Now, I'm particularly interested in what works well at the front end, particularly for practitioners. So some of those professionals listening in really want some more advice around risk assessment, particularly around child criminal exploitation and assessment of the impact of medical, physical trauma and ACEs. Is there any good practice that is going on in terms of a risk assessment tool for child criminal exploitation in in the areas that you are covering? Yes, there are good examples. And actually, they have come from documents like the Criminal Exploitation of Children and Vulnerable Adults, County Lines, Department of Government, the government website documentation. So from that, within that document, it has many risk factors, such as that I've mentioned already. 
So within the hub that I've worked in, a lot of the information from that, such as children who have carrying weapons, missing from home, exploited children, that kind of criteria is added into the wards, the local context or the assessment. I think really with professionals and professionals that I train, it's the professional curiosity and the questioning. So once you see a child in whatever service you are working within and you have a query or concerns based on the information that has been provided to you, there is a responsibility and actually it might do you due diligence to contact whether it's a local authority to identify if there are any risk factors for this young person or this child. And then from that, then that adds towards your, your assessment. So in a nutshell, to answer your question, Mark, there is local responses assessment. So we have one in the organization that I work with, and that's influenced by documents like the Serious Youth Violence Strategy document, the Criminal Expectation document, and some other documents. Would you want me to explain maybe some of the risk factors that we are seeing? I think that would be really helpful because I'm particularly interested in whether the risk assessment does cover mental, physical trauma and a consideration of ACEs impact. Yes, and it really does. So within the actual risk assessment, I can give an example of some of the information that is requested. So county lines, if a practitioner has the knowledge of a child that's, let's say, come in or has been missing or is reported to have concerns about exploitation, that is within the risk assessment. It also considers ACEs. So I've mentioned ACEs before. I mentioned some specific ones, but then it also asks if there are any mental health issues with the child, additional learning needs, ADHD that looks like, or any neurodevelopment issues that could be post-traumatic stress, disorder, etc. They also additional information. So if this child is known to a specific gang affiliation or if this child is known for a specific issue, it also includes other things such as if the child is on a child protection plan, as I've mentioned before, if the child is known on the to be trafficked or at risk of trafficking. There are numerous, but within that, what is fantastic, it does identify adverse childhood experiences. Because what we, again, as I mentioned before, that's one of the main vulnerabilities. Right. You mentioned within the risk assessment process, consideration of learning needs and things like ADHD, autism. That's a, an area I'm really interested in unpicking with you. What is the particular vulnerability for those categories to being criminally exploited? So a child who has ADHD or has any of those vulnerabilities identified as being probably one of the most high risks for being involved in exploitation, whether it be criminal or sexual. And what that does look like is that some of these children are used, uh, their home are used for cocooning. So cocooning is the place where there might be a hub where people will just locate themselves, people that are selling drugs. Uh, they are more susceptible to being the people that they will use their home or take money from them or cash. And there's a vulnerability. Some of these children think that it might be cool to be involved in some of these things. And they might not have the same understanding about the complexities or the vulnerabilities that they are within. So these children are identified as high risk. So then I know for some of the case examples that I've worked with that some of these children do have ADHD or do have ASD or some sort of autistic spectrum disorder. And what we look at is actually that is because there is a greater vulnerability there for them in terms of their perception of things or being able to identify risks for themselves. There's so much complexities in that mark, but it's definitely these children are, are more high risk. Yeah. 
Now, Kletchi, before we have spoken about other elements of ACEs, so one example would be domestic abuse. Yes. Many young people who are gang affiliated do have domestic abuse in their past, either they've been a victim of abuse or a witness to it. Can you just speak a little bit more about the connections between domestic abuse and vulnerability to exploitation? Yeah, I'll give you an example. Within my work, I sometimes sit in on the MARAC, which is the multi-agency risk assessment conference, and then also sitting in on a hub such as some of the ones mentioned, the youth offending service or the violence reduction team hubs. We see young children that parents have been discussed in MARAC, a mother or a father, and then the child is also known to the serious youth violence panel for a reason. So one of the main concerns is that actually there is a great correlation and I see the vulnerabilities where there has been DV in the household. Statistically, children that have witnessed DV are more likely to exert or be violent to a partner or in the future. But it's so significant because I see it in practice. I see that in the number of children that are on child protection plans because of domestic violence, a great number of them have witnessed abuse perpetrated on their parents and actually there are numerous research reports that actually indicate that there is a correlation. So it's for us to be mindful that DV, serious view violence, I believe professionally, this has a big correlation and they both are, they come together, they come together. Yeah. If we're talking gangs, in a way, it's almost like a group form of domestic abuse, focusing around coercion, control, sexual exploitation as well. I want to particularly unpick your knowledge around girls and gangs and what, how you have to change your response to supporting them and what are the core kind of issues emerging specifically with young girls? Yeah, so we are seeing a great number of girls involved in gang serious youth violence. What that looked like before was these were children that will probably carry whether the drugs for a boyfriend or, or a perpetrator, or they would be involved in what we're seeing a high amount of is sexual violence, which is perpetrated against them. So then we have instances, we've had cases where young girls will be taken to specific hubs within a county line, whether it's county lines or another area from home, and they're expected to either prostitute to alleviate someone's debt if they personally have a debt, they may have to give sexual favours to gang members or perpetrators of serious violence. So there was a very great vulnerability in them because a lot of these young children that I've come across are either looked after the children themselves, so there's great vulnerability within them, and somewhat see it as coming into a support system in a strange way. It is seen as having some sort of, maybe a, they can identify with something. So they might not understand the path that they're walking in, the detriment of it. And that's what we see a lot of that. So a young girl might be involved with a, a young man, think that this is a relationship, is then asked to, to provide favours, is then emotionally manipulated, coerced. And that's what we see a lot of. But we're also seeing young women who are quite high up in the offending system and are in themselves are extremely vulnerable and an extremely risky behaviour, whether that is prostitution, recurrently going missing. We're seeing a lot of that. So within practitioner advice, I always ask practitioners to, because realistically, sometimes we have to admit it that we're not aware of some of the vulnerabilities. You and I might not be brought up in an area where we've had to engage in, in any of these things. And sometimes we get a lot of our information from the media. 
a lot of these times there's not an intention from this young person whether it's a female to be involved in any of this it's actually starts with vulnerability and it's not actually just within the most deprived background there's some people that are from middle class backgrounds who actually want to just be in a relationship with someone but then what happens with that is there is a lot of coercion a lot of control and they ends up getting into something that they never initially expected to get in so there needs to be an element of empathy and understanding that you probably have to understand that a lot of these young people are not criminals in a sense they're very vulnerable and a lot of these young girls are very vulnerable so we have services that are specifically tailored to young girls that are sexually exploited and are involved in serious violence I'm just trying to remember one on the top of my head. And I think within London, there's one called Abianda. And that is a service that focuses specifically on females. And also in a cultural sense, within London, it might be specific demographic. Not all, but we've seen a lot of Black African, Black Caribbean young girls that are involved in. But we've also seen other demographics, white British, etc. Yeah, so particular vulnerability with girls is around self-worth, self-esteem, building a sense of hope for the future. Is there any good work that you have seen going on in kind of helping them rebuild that self-esteem, self-worth and have a sense of hope in terms of positive outcomes for the future? Yes, yes, yes. And actually, the service that I mentioned, Abianda, I can give examples with that. So once a child, a young girl has been identified, they're linked in with services that might be children and adolescents mental health service. So if they are identified as having an identified mental health illness, they might have support, therapeutic support through the CAM service. There might be need of exploring whether this child is at significant risk. So social care, there are support workers within that. So there might be a family support worker to support the young girl. But what is essential is therapy and therapeutic work. Because the things that you've mentioned, Mark, and I can identify with that, if you've got a young person who's extremely low in self-worth and will get that from anything that someone says to them, whether it's love or I love you or I'll take care of you, they can go to all lengths to ensure that they keep that there. And that could be at the sacrifice of their own body or their own mental space. So some of the good work that I've seen within the criminal exploitation or sexual exploitation strategy is the identification of these young women. So known to one of the hubs and it's linking in with specialist services such as whether it's Abianda, but also in another area, particularly in South London, there's something called the Athena service. And that is specifically gender based violence towards the female. So if they're of age, at a particular age, I believe it's 16, it may be older, they can engage with that service. And what that is, is there's an actual advocate that would work with the young woman and maybe around some of these things, but also a lot of safety planning and a lot of things looking at actually relationship choices and why that comes from. But a lot of it's deep rooted. So there's a lot of therapy that needs to get down to actually where the child is coming from. Yeah. At the beginning of the uh, podcast, you spoke about Red Thread being embedded in Lewisham at the front end uh, within accident emergency departments, looking for that teachable moment to identify young people at risk and support them. What is your attitude to the need to have those services elsewhere? Because that's quite special in terms of the provision of that service. Are there other areas in London that is operating or is there an aspiration that it becomes normal as practice? Yeah, so very good question. So just to clarify, so it started in King's College Hospital and has just come to three other areas. So Lewisham is one of them, but it's also come to Greenwich. And I believe, don't quote me if I'm wrong, Lambeth. It is in 12 boroughs and local authority areas. And actually, because of the great work, there's an identification that it's needed elsewhere. So it's something that is moving out, definitely. I'm assuming it's a great priority for the government. 
you're probably going to see a lot of more of it mentioned. I see it advertised. So I knew about Red Thread before it came to this local area that I work in, but I knew that it was working really well in King's College. And actually King's College is well, it's a trauma hospital, so it gets a lot of the high tier serious violence victims. And it's been successful in identifying and engaging with these young people. Can you just tell me a little bit more about the vulnerability specific to looked after children, be they in registered children's homes or with foster carers? Yeah, so as well as children with ADHD, children that are looked after are also highly vulnerable in relation to serious violence. So some of the hubs I sit on, I would say um, 45% of the children involved, from my opinion, are children that are lack. And this is within a local, one specific borough. So within that, the vulnerabilities are many. Some of these children are, as well as experiencing ACEs, which already makes them highly vulnerable, some of these children are not in school, or some of these children are known to uh, pupil referral units. So in terms of vulnerability, when a child is missing or not in education, that already also makes them quite highly vulnerable. When their child is lost in, in terms of parental support or is in a new environment and has been moved out of a setting that they're used to, that also makes them quite vulnerable. So what we see is actually is a lot of these children may go missing from their care placement. A lot of children are placed in other areas. I had a case where there was a young girl who was contextually placed for her own risk in a completely another area of England. What happened is actually that broke down because she she left the placement and came back to UK, which wasn't initially, came back, sorry, to London, which wasn't initially picked up. So some of these children may go missing off the radar and they're more susceptible to be getting involved in county lines and are more vulnerable to be involved. So looked after children are very vulnerable. Yeah, that's really helpful in listeners understanding better. We were talking about injuries in hospital, the likes of Red Thread being embedded at the front end, looking at physical trauma, responding to mental health issues, identifying the risk. But there is always connected to these, particularly with multi-agency working in this context, is the tricky issue of managing confidentiality and, and when you do disclose particularly when you've got 16 to 17-year-old range where you've got that transition into potentially different services, but there seems to be a gap in provision sometimes. So I'd love to just hear about your experience of the challenges of managing confidentiality and disclosing confidential information. Yeah, that's a good question, Mark. So it's always good for practitioners to be mindful of different policy documents. So the Working Together policy has a good section on referrals and when to share information. You also have the information sharing document. And also for doctors, there is a confidentiality reporting gunshot and knife rooms document, which is actually very excellent. And I got to have a good look at it, Mark. And what it basically says and what people should know is if a child is at significant harm, so that a child is anyone that is under 18, as we all know, if a child is at significant harm and you are aware of this information, there is a responsibility for a practitioner to share this information it is quite difficult within the 16 to 17 year old because as that previously mentioned, a lot of these children wouldn't necessarily say or disclose that this has happened. But if you are confident that based on the injury or the vulnerabilities of the child or the little disclosure that they have made, whether it's a child that has been missing, a child that has been coerced or a child that has a significant injury or an injury that might look like a stab wound, within the document for the doctors, the confidentiality general medical guidance document for reporting gunshot and knife wounds, it says that if you are 
sure of this and you're confident, the best way is to always speak to the young person and obtain consent. If it's not practical or appropriate to seek consent, that is the young child is not wanting to or refusing to, you have to make a justifiable reason to provide information. And if you feel that this is in line with public interest and you feel the professional should be aware, then that's one basis that you can. If you feel the child is at significant risk, then that's another basis that you can share this information. We always know that the first point is to always share the information with the young person. Also, sometimes what is missing is the discussion with parents. And actually, that's also something that is good to always try to do. However, that doesn't stop a referral or information being shared. And that's really, really helpful. Thank you for that. So we're talking a lot about gunshots, stabbings, high rates of homicide amongst young people. And then that's going to be connected to post-traumatic stress disorder. What kinds of different issues are there for victims in terms of PTSD, but also those young people that are a witness to those highly traumatic events? Mm. So what we know, what I've had experience of is actually that in most cases, children that have PTSD are not identified as having PTSD or are not known to. You might have a young man who is avoidant of health services, so may not access support or help but they're very much affected by being stabbed recurrently or witnessing high-profile violence, being a victim and also being a perpetrator. What we do see is that there is an identification early onset of these young people. And actually, some of my frustrations, especially being a child that's had first-hand experience of friends and family members that have been involved in serious youth violence, is that what you do see is that the symptoms are there and they may be mentally, extremely mentally unwell or are self-medicating with either use of cannabis or whatever means, are acting out, untrusting of professionals, so then wouldn't seek support, but are engaging in the same kind of behavior and are then reacting as a response to what could be quite a small situation in a way that is extreme because of what they've experienced, what they've seen. What is a, an issue is that because CSU violence is quite high profile, it's not quite, it is high profile. Homicide is high profile. Some of these young people, I mentioned adultification, you mentioned it in my bio, but it's the, the knowledge that sometimes practitioners, we see these young people, we view them as adults, but we have a lack of empathy and support. So where you can advocate for a young child who might be experiencing PTSD, which is post-traumatic stress disorder, and engage them in services or refer them to CAMS or any sort of mental health or therapeutic services, you don't or they don't. And what that means is that there is no advocate for these young people. The young people are being seen as adults, specifically the teenage age, young people or children are being seen as adults or being dealt with and are not being supported or provided a support service. And then you have also the view of how it is negatively depicted on the media. So you have then the view of these young people being seen as criminals. And in a lot of cases, they are. But there's no concern for their well-being in terms of mental health. So we see them as a criminals. When you see a criminal, they just need to be in prison put them into prison and then that's the end of it but what you find is that these young people are still having PTSD they might come out re-offend because they're still experiencing PTSD and then there's no support or therapeutic help put in for them so it is a passion of mine and it's a great concern of my mark and I'm glad you mentioned that because a lot of these young people suffer and are undiagnosed with PTSD. Thank you that's a really helpful and thorough answer that I'm sure will be of value for practitioners and managers out there. 
I just want to just jump completely to the subject of social media and vulnerability and grooming through social media and almost kind of desensitizing young people through the likes of drill music to gang culture. It would be great to have a view from you on that. Yeah, that's that's really good. I think now we are in 2020, we are inundated with the number of social media platforms. I think doing a bit of background research, Mark, I was... I mean, it's reflecting on my age, but I was bewildered about the number of social media platforms for young people that I've, I've never heard of. I think that's OK. I think we need to be aware of them. And I think some that are mentioned in the media, we've got TikTok where we see lots of videos on TikTok. We see actually young girls and boys playing Nintendo games, but we don't know. Actually, sometimes they're engaging with people from all over the UK and there is exploitation and vulnerabilities within that. You also have Bumble, you have Grindr, WhatsApp is a new thing. But you mentioned drill music, and it's a big controversial one. And I know the government has moved towards the banning of this kind of music. And there's all sorts of discussion. What we do know is actually there is instances where this kind of music is heavy in, in the area of criminality or seriously violence or the glorification in some of the wordings on violence towards another. That's fact. And you can hear that. I mean, it is a cultural thing and, it, and it's quite popular in London. People do say there's positivities in that, but it has influenced. I do know of a few cases where young men have died, where one is a drill artist and is in beef, what they call it, or having issues with another drill artist. And due to music or reprisals in wordings that have been said in some of the music, the young person is killed. So that is there. And that is what I am seeing. It is very complex and I think people need to be aware of it. I know it's kind of not, it might not be your sort of music, so you're not really aware in it with all that's going on. So, But I think it's really important for practitioners to be aware of because of the vulnerabilities that is on. So I often give people insight into it. But within your music, there's a lot of vocabulary that's used that people won't be aware of. So I might give some wordings to people to let them know actually that this is what they use for drugs, or this is what's a tag name for knives. And there is some kind of different language within that. But it's good for us to know because there is a lot, a huge vulnerability within that. There is a website called the National Online Safety Website, which is a resource that I use and I give out to parents and practitioners. And it provides something called Wake Up Wednesdays, which is an excellent resource, which gives parents and practitioners safety guidance on all social media platforms that young people are using. So house party, WhatsApp, it will give the information on what this social media platform is, but it will also tell you how to ensure your young person is safe and what to do if you feel that there are unsafe practices or, or there are vulnerabilities within on this social media platform. Excellent. Thank you. Uh, Kletchi, we're coming to a close now. And, and what I'd like to do to uh, reach a conclusion is ask you about what you think are the things that could be done better for the future and, and just mention a little bit about the importance of early intervention services. Yes. So I'm glad you asked this question, Mark. And I was thinking, actually, what would I say is quite important? I, I've mentioned many of it already, but I also will reiterate and say it again is if you don't know, you need to know. Children are dying and we see it every day. And I think early intervention is so important. So at different levels, we have different services and at different stages, different services engage with children. So from the onset from midwifery, where there is incidences happening of domestic violence and there's vulnerabilities there to later stage where you've got the safeguarding school nurse and you've got other agencies involved. 
If practitioners are aware of what's available, then they're better able to intervene early and support a young person. We live in London, we live in the UK, which is a multi-ethnic country. And um, within that comes different complexities in cultures. And what we know is within serious violence, it looks higher in specific cultures and demographics. And in other areas, it looks very different in terms of what you might see with serious violence. If you are a service or a practitioner providing support to that service, it's very much your responsibility for you to be culturally aware, culturally responsive, and be understanding of how you can make a difference. So if you have an awareness of some of the complexities in a child in a specific culture, you're better able to know how to interview or advocate for that young person. So I always advocate for cultural competency, Mark, wherever I train. I always ask practitioners to be curious, basically to always ask questions. You have a gut feeling, share that information. What we don't know from serious case reviews is that the main topic that comes up is lack of sharing of information. It seems like it's a popular recommendation again and again. If you don't know, always ask questions. We have so many services that you can. So those are two of the main things that I would say, Mark, that is very important We are in a country that there is so many services available to us, but we have to think about how do we intervene early. You may hold a piece of information to a puzzle that could support and save a young child's life from potentially being at risk of being a homicide victim. So just do your due diligence and check and also share information and be responsible as we are expected to be as practitioners. Kalechi, I just want to uh, thank you on behalf of the association and and all those members out there who have been listening for an enlightening, very informative and extremely thought-provoking podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Mark. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the AOCPP's podcast. If there are any specific topics you want discussed in future episodes, email us at hello at AOCPP.com. And if you would like more information about the Association of Child Protection Professionals, then visit our website at childprotectionprofessionals.org.uk. Thank you.